Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Hey, folks, hope you're all well. I'm Mike, along with Mark and Barry. And our guest on this episode is Astros legend and Hall of Famer Jeff Bagwell. And Mark, I've really been looking forward to having Jeff on, not just because he's a Hall of Famer, who you and all of our listeners know pretty darn well, but because his longtime agent is our podcast partner, Barry Axelrod. Yeah, and you know what's important, Mike? Uh, there's layers to everyone's career, and that's the reason why I absolutely love this podcast and what it generates. We're going to listen to a Hall of Famer today, Jeff Bagwell, but you're going to hear uh, the unselfishness, uh, the importance of teammates, and also leading into his Hall of Fame induction, which is really important to everyone that's played against him because this guy grinded out his career and was spectacular for a long period of time. Well, Jeff, we're thrilled that you're able to join us, but I got to tell you, I'm a little surprised that we could convince your agent and your buddy Barry to get you on the podcast. I know you're a tough guy to catch up with. I, I'm, not, I can, I'm not that tough. Go ahead, Barry. I can tell you from past experience, Jeff is not, uh, he doesn't love public speaking. He doesn't like talking a lot. So I, I consider this a major victory to have him here with us. <laughs> It's a coup. Well, he's a Hall of Famer. Hall of Famers are never uh, that easy for us to get. But you had an extraordinary career. I think every fan's aware of that 15 years in Houston. Remarkable. But I don't think a lot of our listeners are aware that you're originally from Boston. That much they may know. But what they may not know is that back in the 80s, it was clearly a soccer hotbed. Hmm. Big, big time players coming out of the Boston, New England area. And joking aside, you know, you're quite the player. But you chose to pursue baseball at the University of Hartford. Why'd you go that route and not college soccer? Well, talent, partly. <laughs> uh, baseball has, you know, always been my love. I uh, started with my father, but I was good in soccer and I got more phone calls to play soccer in, in, um, in college than I did baseball. Um, so they tried to get me to play soccer at University of Hartford, but my, my baseball coach didn't want that to happen. So I just didn't have the talent. I mean, when, when you get, it's one thing in high school, uh, but when you start getting into college and then professional, if you can even get there, the uh, the talent level just goes so far. And I didn't have that kind of talent. Baggy, when you go to University of Hartford, and uh, I think every guy, because I grew up in the in the Northeast as well, went to University of Maine, and we competed against each other. But the challenge when you're uh, back east, the Northeast especially, at that time, it wasn't necessarily a hotbed. A lot of those players that were very good went down south. They went to the programs that were very already established. Uh, you get an opportunity at University of Hartford. Did you feel like that was uh, the best choice for you? Yeah, well, for once, Wayne, I didn't have an option, really. I think yeah. Stetson called me at one point. Uh, and you're 100% right. You know, <clears throat> I think my, um, you know, it, it's always snowing, raining, freezing, and all that kind of stuff. We don't play that many games, so you don't get the exposure. Not like you do today, where you can go online and <clears throat> watch people play and stuff like that. And then um, I knew at the University of Hartford that I could start as a freshman. You know, if I go to Miami or or any of these big schools, you know, I might have been just hanging around there till my junior year. So uh, it's something that I tell kids nowadays, man, when you're going to go somewhere, make sure you can play. Yeah. Uh, because if you go to those big schools, you're generally going to be behind a junior or senior. So you're probably not going to play until maybe your junior year. So it was important to me that I got to start right when I, uh, right when I got into college. 
you establish yourself at the University of Hartford, but also you get the opportunity to go to the Cape Cod League, a prestigious college amateur league that really is an important next step. Um, you get that that opportunity, as I say, but uh, you're still questioning yourself. You're wondering how you stack up. And for all our young listeners out there, I think that's always uh, the next step. I mean, am I am I good enough to face the elite? Um, am I good enough to face a guy that comes from University of Texas in the Cape Cod League? And he's talked about, I've, I've heard his name, but no one's heard mine. You go to Cape Cod League uh, and you perform there. What did that do for you? To be honest with you, everything. Uh, it was the biggest thing in my career at that particular time. I don't know if you call college a career, but it was, it was something where I came in there, just like you said, I went to a tryout in Wareham. My dad drove me up there. Uh, and I was on this hill and I'm looking down and there's probably 50 guys down there trying out. And I looked at my dad, I said, I'm not going down there. He goes, the hell you're not because I just drove three hours here. You're getting down there. <laughs> yeah. so I get down there, eventually get a call from Chatham and I'm sitting there and I'm, I'm playing third base and I look out and I'm watching Robin Ventura play. Robin Ventura had just come off setting the college record for the most hits consecutive games hit. And I'm like watching him. I go, you know what? He's not that much better than me. He just happens to be on TV. Uh, Albert Bell, who used to be Joey Bell back then, was playing mm -hmm. left field for uh, Harwich, not Harwich, um, one of those towns. And I was like, he was pretty special. But it, it just gave me a realization that I just, I was as good as the guys that were out there. I just was not recognizable, as you said. Um, and that was big for me to, to feel like I could play with the best players in the country, especially with wood bats and. Um, it, it was just, a, it was very, very important for my career for me to feel like I, I was able to play in that level. Yeah. You mentioned those names too. Uh, and, uh, 1988, I'll take you to the next year that you're down the Cape Cod league. I'm your teammate. Uh, and this was unbelievable. Why I say this is that particular year in 1988 to put in perspective for this amateur league, 40 players of that year made it to the big leagues. And you, you start thinking about it. Uh, three Rookie of the Year awards out of that same class, yourself, Chuck Knobloch, and Tim Salmon. Five MVPs, which is, is uh, Frank Thomas, which was 1993-94, yourself, uh, Mo Vaughn, and also Jeff Kent. And two Hall of Famers, as we know, yourself and also Frank Thomas. So the, the ability to see the talent at this level and stack yourself up. You were an all-star there. What do you remember of the talent that, that was in that league? Well, I remember Mo, obviously, <clears throat> because we got both, both got drafted by the Red Sox. Um, you know, and Mo was kind of like larger than life uh, with his personality. Um, and then I played with Tim Salmon. I remember playing the all-star game with him. I remember Frank Thomas didn't make the all-star team that year. Yeah. Um, you know, with Knobloch and all those guys, it, it was, it was a, it was a lot of good players. And, you know, Swin, back then, that was the best league in the country. Like, if you could play there, that I mean, that's how I got drafted. You know, I, I hit 400 three years in a row in, in college, but I got drafted out of, of how I played in Cape Cod. Uh, and I truly believe that. And it, it really was something where it kind of turned my career around because that's what you need. And it's the same when you get to the big leagues. You know, you look around, you go, am I good enough to stay, play here? Then am I good enough to stay here? But So I learned early that, I was good enough to play with those guys that I'd have a better shot when I got uh, a little bit older. Let's let's get uh, interested in how the dynamics of the Cape Cod League went. Uh, you had to 
uh, have a job and the reason why there were host families and you almost had to pay rent. Uh, so you would have to take on a job that was part of the league and, and, and how they established it. You and I had the same job. We had to run camps, but also we had to uh, fix the field for the game that, that particular night. The big thing of the day was uh, rock, paper, scissors for the tractor. And can you honestly say that I dominated you that summer? <laughs> I mean, as far as rock, paper, scissors, yes, you definitely dominated. <laughs> but, you know, it, it, life comes in weird ways, though. And now, because I have more hair on my chin, I dominate you on the hair. <laughs> <laughs> that is, that well, is I'll, true. I'll take that beating. But the reason Sween wanted that, that thing and I let him have it because he ran all the time because he was always bunting uh, <laughs> to get the fastest guy in the league. But that's the laziest job that you can get. That's the one, that's why it was so important. <laughs> I think people would need to realize too, that uh, Jeff Bagwell was an all-star that year. That was my first year in the league and I led the league in strikeouts and I was not a pitcher. So uh, that was not, not really a good thing. I didn't feel very comfortable. I had to make some adjustments. Uh, some of the other funny things, Jeff, and you remember this, uh, I, you remember tank Mike LeBlanc from the university of Maine. Um, he had a job and it was a fishery and he smelled so bad. So when we came in for stretch, it was all fish guts and he came straight from his job. And he's a relief pitcher, which one of the funniest guys I've ever met. Uh, and we gave him so much crap for being having that job. So our rock, paper, scissors game actually worked out for, for the best of us. Yes, it did, for sure. Because <laughs> the year before that, I was a dishwasher at Friendly's. <laughs> and that, my father had always preached to me in my life, don't ever, you can never quit something you start. I should have quit that job because that was before those these nice dishwashers where you had to put stuff in and then you take it out and all the steam comes straight into your face. That was the worst job in the world, but uh, those were great times then. then. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think people have an appreciation for what it's like for you guys at that level before you get to the glitz and glamour of the big leagues, but dishwashing at friendlies or working in a fishery, you're due paying, my friend. You are due paying. I mean, seriously, <laughs> nobody cares. It was the best time of our lives. We got to do what we wanted. Uh, playing baseball and just just having a blast. That was that was some good two years, I'll tell you. Yeah, that. it sure was. It was it was such a, a benefit to play against that talent, but also the relationships were everlasting. You know, it's interesting to me too is that you both said the same thing. Both being from the Northeast, low exposure as far as baseball goes at that time, uh, and how important the Cape Cod League was. And Jeff, you'd mentioned you know your fourth round pick in 1989 after you kind of burst onto the scene uh, in a way through the Cape Cod League. And you're drafted by the hometown Red Sox. That does not happen no matter where you are in the country very often that your hometown team picks you. you got a whole family up there in the Boston area picked by the Red Sox. What do you remember about your family's reaction that day? Well, um, I was playing in an all-star game at Fenway Park, a college all-star game. Um, and I called my father after the game and asked if I had gotten drafted. And he said no. Um, so me and two of my other teammates from Hartford got in a car, grabbed a <laughs> case of beer and drove back home. Uh, and I had no cell phones back then, so I had no idea. So finally I get back to my house and I look, there's a whole bunch of cars down there um, in my long driveway. And my dad comes walking out of the house and throws a Red Sox jersey at me. And he wow. says, you got drafted by the Red Sox. So I mean, obviously for me, I mean, there couldn't have been anything better than that. You know, my whole family are Red Sox fans. Um, 
and to get drafted by them, you know, it's, it really was a dream come true at the time. When you get a chance to get in the organization, though, you're playing a couple of seasons. You see what's ahead of you. Yeah, you burst on the scene, rookie ball, A ball, uh, double A. Interesting to me, though, in 1990, you get traded to Houston in what is widely considered one of the worst trades in the history of baseball. Maybe Babe Ruth going from Boston to the Yankees. Maybe put that one ahead of it, but you yeah. go for Larry Anderson, a reliever, pretty good pitcher, but he only throws 15 games for the, uh, for the Sox. And you're in Houston now, at least as far as on paper goes, what was that like for you emotionally when you get, uh, traded from Boston? Well, um, we were in Albany and we had three games left with the Yankees. Uh, we had to win one game to make the playoffs and then Butch Hobson was throwing his weak BP out there and I was getting ready to hit and Pitching coach came out and said something to me, took the, all the balls and threw them all over the place and walked me in and said, man, you got traded. I'm like, what? Um, <laughs> for who? He goes, Larry Anderson. I said, where the heck's he play? He goes, Houston. And I'm like, Houston? Like, I don't know anything about Houston. Um, I'm thinking horses, tumbleweeds, stuff like that. I, I don't know what Houston's like, which obviously, if anybody knows, it is nothing like that. It's straight concrete. But you know, I, I didn't know in a very early age, I got the, the idea of this is a business. Um, and my father picked me up from Albany and drove me back. And somehow, some way he knew that Ken Caminiti had a bad year that year. He said, you got a chance. So, you know, as much as I was devastated, it, it was just part of the deal. Uh, and if you look back, if you're the Red Sox and you got Wade Boggs, Tim Nairing, uh, Scott Cooper ahead mm -hmm. of me, Wade Boggs is being the first guy who happens to be a Hall of Famer. You know, it, you look at me, I'm hitting 333 in AA. I got four homers. Uh, I could hit, but I need to get a reliever for the Red Sox to try and make it to the, you know, the playoffs in the World Series. So it makes sense on their side. It just turns out that Larry pitched one year and that I went on to have the career that I, I did. But I, I totally understand why they did it. Uh, Baggy, how'd your family react? Because, uh, you know, being Red Sox fans, you, you almost get pigeonholed into that excitement of, we know Jeff's going to get that opportunity. Well, you think about it, when I got drafted, they cried because they were so happy. When I got traded, yeah. they cried because I was leaving. <laughs> I was making my way up. I was in, you know, I was in Connecticut playing in New Britain in AA. The next step, I guess, would have been Pawtucket and then the Red Sox. So my family would have been able to see a ton of my games. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm telling you when you're a player, you don't, I, I never even thought about the idea of being traded. Never. I was just a kid going and doing my job. And that's another mm -hmm. thing I tell kids, don't worry about the organization. Just do what you, you do and make them do something. And I guess I made them do something and I got traded and I had a 15 year, a year career in Houston. You know, I, uh, I'm probably the last guy that should be defending that trade. But I always say it wasn't such a bad trade for the Red Sox because they were fighting for a pennant or fighting to win the, uh, the AL East. And Anderson did pitch in 15 games and with a one point something ERA and got him there. And what good was a, a double A third baseman going to do for him right then? So exactly right. And it makes total sense. In real time, it wasn't so bad. In uh, retrospectively, one of the worst of all time. But the best for me. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know what, Baggy, that's interesting because, uh, you know, I think our listeners are going to understand you have a blue collar work ethic that you're taking to Houston. 
Um, the hard thing is when you get traded and you go to another organization, it almost feels like you have to reintroduce yourself uh, to the organization and show them what you got. How did you handle that leading into the 1991 uh, spring training? Well, I'm going to go one step backwards a little bit. So I get traded and they tell me, well, you're either going to go to the big leagues or you're going to go to uh, instruction league. Well, I was just in instruction league the year before. So of course I go to instruction league. Um, and they said they want to see me hit and I'm like, okay. So I hit like five home runs in like four games. And then I hurt my left shoulder a little bit and they kept me there the whole time. I'm like, how much more do you, I've hit four home runs in an entire yeah. year. I just hit five down here. So I spent the entire year down there. So then going into spring training, they kind of knew a little bit about me, but they still had Cammy, you know? So when you look at the team back then, there was an opening in first base, Cammy, and my, my dad came for the first few games in spring training and Cammy went like 12, 12 for four. Like he had like eight hits in every at bat was like eight hits. It was unbelievable. And my dad looked at me and he goes, well, Tucson's not that bad. <laughs> and I said, yeah. I said, and on Cammy, you know, he kind of took me underneath his wing when I was there. Um, kind of showing me around and not being, you know, he's like, I know you're trying to take my job, but blah, whatever. And so we worked out together and did stuff, but um, just another great experience where I just went about my business. Um, and I guess I hit real well, you know, when you're young, you don't really notice what you're doing. You're just freaking playing. Um, and I guess I did enough where the two first basemen were having terrible springs and I was having a great one. And they said, you know, I got called in, 10 days left in spring training and Bob Watson said, I thought for sure I was getting sent down. he said, you can either play first base in the big leagues or third base in triple A. And I said, well, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, um, but I think I'll try first base in the big leagues. And then went on the craft course to play first. Well, uh, you know what? The late Ken Caminetti, uh, a teammate of mine too, that doesn't surprise me. Him opening arms up to you and, and also saying, Hey, Baggy, this is what you have to do. Uh, this is the way you play the game. Uh, it almost put probably a stamp on how you presented the game yourself. Um, but that's something that's important to get that from teammates. Uh, you were asked to go to first base. What was that reaction and how was that adjustment? It was great. You know, like I'm 23 years old um, and I'm playing a, a, a B game in the morning and then I'm playing in the A game at, at, in, uh, in the afternoon. And um I was with Bob Robertson, who used to play first base for the Pirates, and he just took me every single day. We'd ground balls, picks, everything that we needed to do at first base, and it was a blast. Um, you know, even even when they told me I made the team, I still didn't believe it. Uh, so it was it was a uh, Cammy was very he was great, and as you said, Sween, his heart was so big um, that he mm -hmm. you know he was more than welcome to help me. Nancy, I mean, the kids were just born. I think. His oldest was just born, um, and uh, to, 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 for what he did for me is something that I, I when I when I became a big leaguer, try to give back to others too. And that's important too. Uh, when you have that influence in a guy like that, it, it's surprising, but man, it, it feels so good to know that there's a guy that has a heart. It's about hey, let's just go out there and win ball games. If you're better than me, it's fine. Uh, I, I'm okay with that. That's that's Cammy in a nutshell. Um, interesting in watching you baggy transfer into from the third base where you have a smaller glove to first base. Typically they have these big, huge gloves 
as first baseman. You didn't use that. Why was that uh, the case uh, when you had to choose that type of style of glove that you used? Yeah, I used a smaller one. I had one made that was smaller. Um, I just feel it's, I feel it's better. You have more control and more, um, your hands become a lot softer and you use your hands a lot more with a smaller glove. Uh, you see a lot of, you see some guys nowadays, they do the same thing. There are some guys with some big gloves, but in general, it just feels, it feels better where I feel like I can control the baseball when it gets to me. You know, Jeff, um, when you uh, talk about Bob Watson, uh, giving you your choice between AAA and the major leagues, and you obviously chose to play first base. When did he finally tell you you were going to make the team? And I know both you and our dear friend Daryl Kyle have told the, the same story before. Get into that a little bit, if you would. Well, we were both we were sitting out in the field and we were stretching. And uh, Dennis Labora, who was our clubhouse guy at the time, uh, or and Barry Waters, our traveling secretary, came out and told both Daryl and I. We kind of looked at each other and kind of disbelief and whatever. So we used to, uh, so we get back, we go to our hotel room uh, and we stayed at this place called the Save Inn. All right, think about how nice that is. <laughs> so we get on the bus to go and Daryl and I are sitting next to each other on a bus. Luis Gonzalez is behind us talking about his rookie card already and all this kind of, <laughs> and uh, you know, <laughs> and so we're driving and we took a left off the main road right past the save in. And DK and I looked at each other and go, I know they're going to stop this freaking bus. I know they're going to stop it. We're <laughs> and then when finally when we went over the bridge, I'm like, holy crap, we made this team. So, um, Something I'll never forget about that with DK and the save-in. The first time I met him was there uh, in Instructional League that year. So I'm grateful. Now that I, now that I think back on it, I'm grateful I went to Instructional League because I got a chance to meet DK earlier than most. You know, Jeff, aside from Ken Caminiti, when you're in that big league locker room then, who do you feel like was the most influential uh, player for you at that time? Casey Candell. Um, Casey Candell was a kind of a utility infielder, um, but was playing second base for us at the time. He just... He, he had this ability to actually make fun of any person in the entire room and not get in trouble. Um, Cammy repeatedly on buses wanted to beat the living snot out of him every single day, <laughs> but we wouldn't let, we wouldn't, we would cover Casey or I'd drag him to his room or something like that. But he told me, he told me how to run the bases. He's taught me about uh, how to be a professional. And the biggest thing I, I tell the story of we're sitting in Atlanta at the last last um series of the year three game series we first go in there in april <clears throat> there was literally five thousand fans there you could hear the you could hear the buzzing of the light towers and all that kind of stuff we, we go back at the end of the year in september and it is packed and they're doing the tomahawk chop and all that and casey and i are sitting next to each other on the on the top of the dugout and uh i go wow i go this is freaking awesome he goes, you, and then he cussed at me, you stupid. He goes, this is what it's all about. And I went, yeah, this is cool. <laughs> but, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, this is what it's about. And, you know, not just going out and playing and, you know, making money and all that. That's all part of the whole situation, but we're here to win. Uh, and to hear that from him and just the way that he taught me how to be a professional, um, I'll never forget. Baggy, it's interesting. Uh, Casey Candell, it's it just when I hear that name and, and that's what happens as baseball players, you hear names and you, you were never teammates with that certain guy. Uh, but I remember being in AAA and Casey Candell was was playing for Buffalo at the time. And uh, someone says, hey, have you ever met Casey Candell? 
And obviously you already presented the type of guy he is where he's a teacher. He understands the game of baseball. There's guys like that, but also it's a balance too. And Casey Candel was known as one of those guys that kept everyone loose, which is interesting. Um, the story was in Buffalo that we took infield outfield. And for our listeners at the beginning of the game, when you're in, in the minor leagues, you took infield outfield a lot because you had to, you know, get ready for the game. It was preparation, uh, throwing to bases, all of that stuff. Well, Casey Candell, uh, probably midsummer, ended up doing it in his jock and his cleats. Yeah. And- <laughs> And that was normal for Casey Candell. But someone told me that story, and I have never looked at him the same after I heard that story. Oh, God, yeah. Uh, you know, you told your story. If this was a uh, R-rated deal right here, I could tell you about how he took batting practices on Sundays. Um, <laughs> but that, you know, that was his deal, man. He he kept everybody in check. He kept egos in check. He didn't care who you were. Um, he would have something to say and he, he was so, he was small, he was funny. And so you felt like you couldn't beat him up. So (laughs) it all worked out good. But, uh, you know, Casey Candell, you know, he is, he is probably the reason why when I talk to younger kids in a clubhouse or anything like that, he's the guy that mentored me. And then when I was in the clubhouse and I was the leader of the clubhouse, I did the same thing that Casey did. And then Cammy did with me. Uh, Daryl did the same thing with, you know, Matt Morris and guys like that is you, you pass along the knowledge you get how to be a professional and what we are actually here to do. And that's to win baseball games. You know, he must've made you feel comfortable because you have a, just an extraordinary rookie season. Your rookie of the year in 91, you hit 294, 15 homers, 82 runs driven in. But you mentioned Luis Gonzalez earlier in this conversation and yeah. his comment about the, his baseball card. What meant more to you, getting the Rookie of the Year hardware or seeing your Major League Rookie card? <laughs> well, the Rookie of the Year was pretty cool. Don't get me wrong on that. <laughs> um, but you know what? It, it, and I, I said it a little bit earlier, when, when you play and when you're young, you don't really think about that stuff. You're just playing. Um, and at the time, towards the end of the year, they start talking about it. But you've got to remember, that was 1991. That was before social media. That was before Zoom right here. So there wasn't that much knowledge out there. So you're just playing um, and learning. Like for me, I, I mean, I'm, I'm hanging out with Casey and and Ken Caminiti after games. And, um, you know, it's I'm just having a freaking blast. And just so happens that I played well. I mean, my numbers now comparative to some of these guys now is not quite the same thing, but it was a different game back then as far as numbers wise. But man, I was just having a good time and just the rookie of the year kind of just came along with it. You come off a, a huge year, but also you realize too, when you come off a big year, you can go out there and perform, but you also have to have somebody that represents you. Uh, you met Barry, as we understand it, in uh, after the 92 season. Um, mm-hmm. How'd you guys meet and, and, and why did you pick Barry Axelrod? Well, after... Um, the 92 season, I was looking for an agent and our clubhouse guy, Dennis Laborio and Barry were very close. They used to go to the rodeo together and he happened to be Bish's agent too. So they said, you need to go meet with Barry. Uh, and as the first time I met with Barry and talking to him, you know, it wasn't the X and O things that, that I, that I looked at. It was the person that I looked at and anybody who knows Barry Axelrod knows he's one of the finest human beings on the planet. 
And Barry, for me, was going to talk to the Astros the way I would want him to talk to them um, as a as a man, as a uh, integrity and all that, because that's what I felt that I wanted. You know, I wasn't, you know, looking for this agent that was going to squeeze every single penny out of somebody and stuff like that. I wanted somebody that would represent me the way I would talk to them. And then, you know, Barry, like I said, he's one of the finest humans on the planet and to have him and as you see now, you know, we're still best friends. So, I mean, this is a long, long-standing relationship. You know, I, I have to uh, chime in and say it works both ways. Um, I had heard about Jeff from Craig, from Dennis Laborio and one other guy, Phil Garner. And I would mm-hmm. always ask, I'm like, how is this guy? Is he okay? Is, and they all said, yeah, he's a, he's a guy that would work with you because of the same types of things as integrity and, I have told Mark this before. I'm sure I've told you this, Jeff, but among the proudest things of any of the clients that I've ever represented for me is when people say he was a great teammate and he played the game the right way. And they have said that about Mark Sweeney. They've said that about you innumerable times. And uh, uh, you, you you don't have success as an agent without having a client who not only, you know, hits 300 and with... 35 home runs every year, but also is a really good person that allows you to do what you need to do to get him there. So uh, it's been a good mix. And as, as Jeff said, uh, I, I value his friendship today more than I ever have probably for a variety of reasons, which he knows about. So interesting always, I think for us to hear, you know, when relationships transcend business, uh, and become personal the way yours had. And you talk about joining forces in 92. Jeff, you made an interesting remark. You said you wanted somebody who would represent you and talk to the team in a way you felt uh, you wanted the team spoken to. And it brings me to an interesting story that I'd heard in uh, 94. You'd already had three good seasons with the Astros in the big leagues. You go into spring training in 1994. And as the story goes, Houston had interest, at least you thought, in a multi-year deal in spring training. Right. What happened there? Well, I remember the most I remember about that is I was going to play golf at Lake Nona and I was talking to Barry on the phone on the way and they were talking with Bob Watson, I believe. And we were somewhere in this two year deal. Barry's obviously probably could tell more and it just wasn't quite the right number. Um, And then he had told me that they, we settled my, arbitration case like fifty thousand dollars under what we asked for which was kind of funny during the day and bob didn't want to go that much and we said okay fine and then so we just did our arbitration i had that one year that i played under that contract and then after that they had pretty much had to give me a multi-year deal so they left a little bit on the table um but uh, we made up for it because i had a pretty good year in 94. Yeah, as I as I recall it, I went down to Florida because there was interest in a multi-year, yeah. and uh, uh, I, I guess I talked us out of it for some reason. But they, when we got down there, they said we're just going to go one more year and see how '94 goes. And uh, I think probably in retrospect, they may regret that uh, <laughs> based on the the MVP year that that occurred in uh, 1994 and the contract that happened afterwards. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. Uh, Baggy, you rattle off uh, great years. And, and when you get that multi-year contract, it's comfort and it's knowing that it's in your back pocket. But your personality, as I know, 
it's like, hey, man, I, I'm going out to win today. I'm going out to uh, to get this team to where it needs to be. It's not necessarily, hey, uh, I, I want to get more money. I want to get this. It's never been about the money aspect. But you start rattling off very good seasons, and you you make your first All-Star game in 94, uh, one of four of them. Did any of those uh, to you represent – uh, the most important of the four? Well, I, you know, Swain, I, I think, you know, like we talked about early, 94 was big because I'm in a locker room with the best players in the game. Um, you know, with Barry Bonds and guys like that, Tony Gwynn and Moises and just the best players. So that's a kind of a neat feeling. Uh, that's another one when guys kind of check their egos at the door. Uh, and then, of course, when 99, when I, when I was, uh, I got to play in Fenway Park, um, you know, as an all-star with the Astros, that was, that was a big deal for me, a big deal for my family. So those two probably um, are my biggest ones. When you go back to that, uh, the, the one in 99 in Boston, uh, everyone remembers Ted Williams coming out in that golf cart. What do you remember? It was just the most amazing um, situation, you know, and Fenway is such a cozy place. Um, and to, to have all those players there out at their positions and then all of a sudden through the gates out there by the bullpen, here comes Ted Williams in a cart. Uh, just an amazing feeling. I, I remember Joe Morgan telling me, um, God rest his soul too, that Ted Williams was, he was John Wayne. Like, you know, when you go to the hall of fame, you know, you have a dinner upstairs and all that kind of stuff. But when Ted Williams walked in, it was like John Wayne walked in. And that was the same way it was at the, at Fenway park. When, when he, does something hall of famers follow that tells you something about what ted williams meant to those guys and to me to be honest with you for you 94 was just as strange a year as i think any man could have not to mention the league you know 2020 aside i guess strange because it was shortened by a strike and there was no world series but a special year for you personally as we talked about a moment ago you make uh the all-star team but you're also Go on to win the National League MVP award in 110 games. You hit 368, 39 homers, 116 RBIs. What was that season like for you, all things considered, the strike and yet the award as well? Well, as far as the, the game was being played, um, it was, I guess, lack for a better word, kind of stupid. Like, I, everything I looked for, I got, and everything I got, I hit hard. Um, everything seemed to work out. Um, you know, I was hitting 368 and I was actually, my average was starting to go up. Now we knew the strike had a chance to come. And when the strike came, I broke my hand. Um, and I'm like, okay, I can come back in three or four weeks and it will be okay. And stuff like that and see how it goes. But the longer the strike went on, the more, you know, kind of devastation when they canceled the world series. I mean, that was a huge blow. Um, never been, never been done before. And to see the business of baseball rear its ugly head, um, was disappointing. And yeah, the, I won the MVP that year and that's great. It was a special year and all that, but to lose the season on a strike and to lose the world series is far greater than me winning the MVP as for overall baseball. Um, yeah, it was great for me. I won an MVP, but for baseball as a whole, that was a terrible time. You know, the, the interesting thing that came out of that as well is during the work stoppage in August or September or whenever it was, uh, the Astros called, Drayton McLean called and said, you know, you want to take another shot at this multi-year deal? And uh, we, we went into his office in Houston and within 10 minutes, 
yeah. we made we made your first multi-year deal, which are your first meaningful multi-year deal during the work stoppage, which was kind of unheard of at the time. But sure. uh, but uh, it, it paid off. That that you did your job in '94 to make things easy. That's all <laughs> yeah. I get to say. Yeah, I wish I had another chance at that nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't we all? Right, Baggy. Yeah, um, hey. Uh, uh, for our listeners, um, I, I think you have to uh, really understand that when you go to Houston and you're establishing yourself, uh, Craig Biggio has already uh, moved from catcher to center field, uh, to second base, to center field, back to second base. Um, and you guys are hand in hand. Uh, both of you guys are lockstep in your career. The killer bees, Bagwell Biggio. Yes, there's Lance Berkman and and others, but it really became the two of you. Can you put in perspective what he meant for you in your career? Well, I, like you said, Sween, it's we go hand in hand. Um, when Biz does well, that means I'm doing well. Um, you know, Biz, he had a probably a five-year run um, where he, no question on earth that he was the best leadoff hitter in baseball. And at second base, he was he was after Ryan Sandberg, the guy that was hitting 20 home runs, driving in 80, stealing 50 bases. Uh, he was an incredible player on his own right, but we always were locked at, and I, and I'm proud of that. Uh, Biz and I, as Barry knows, you know, we made, you know, sacrifice, I say sacrifice. We moved money around to get other players and um, which was, wasn't a big deal for us because we wanted the best players that we could get for our organization. But the one thing that I always tell people about Craig is if I was a father and brought my son to a game, I would tell him, look at number seven out there and watch how he plays. Cause Craig played the game, the way the game's supposed to be played hard every minute, whether it's a pop out, a ground ball, whether what, whatever it was, Craig did it the right way. And I'm proud to be associated with that. You know, interesting that you, you say that. Sorry, Barry. Interesting that you say that because uh, when I think of Craig Biggio, I think a leadoff guy, uh, you think of number seven, you think of the uh, being a pest as an opposition. He was a pest as the leadoff guy. Almost uh, you could assume he's going to hit a double at the worst scenario for the opposition. But also, uh, I remember him with the pine tar on his back, yeah. uh, the pine tar wrapped all the way up his bat. And uh, when we, you went into Houston, that was almost the best thing because now it's the Moda stick. It's the sticky stuff around the barrel. It's not the pine tar that you guys had in Houston. Yeah. Um, that smell, that that understanding of what Craig Biggio was all about, uh, that's fascinating to me. Yeah, you say smell. There's a whole bunch of smells there. So this helmet <laughs> smelled because he, he would never let them take the, the pine tar off it. Matter of fact, somebody did it one year before during spring training. He lost his, his head. Um that they took his pine tar off his, off his helmet. But yeah, the pine tar, that's, that's a smell that you can't forget. Uh, it's a great smell. I mean, I, I know you probably think the same way, Swain. It, it's, yeah. a, it's a smell that feels like baseball. Um, and Craig had to have it a certain way and all that. But um, yeah, nobody's ever going to forget about the pine tar on that. His pine tar in his helmet and that stupid um, arm guard that got him to record of, of being hit by pitches. Yeah. <laughs> if, if you... <laughs> I don't count. If someone who didn't know what team Craig played with saw a picture of him from the neck up with only his helmet on, you would have no idea what team he played for. <laughs> exactly. But something I can say about the relationship and what these two guys would talk about individually to me is 
uh, Jeff would credit Craig because Craig had some incredible number of times put himself in scoring position, either with a double, with a base hit and a steal. Somehow he'd find himself on second base when Jeff Bagwell came to the plate and there would be an RBI waiting for Jeff. And Craig, uh, on the other side, gives Jeff uh, a, a huge amount of credit for seeing the pitches he saw and scoring the number of runs he saw. And uh, I, the meaningfulness of it, uh, I think, was illustrated when Craig got his 3,000th hit. I was there. And, of course, Craig wanted his family to come onto the field and celebrate with him. But I remember him looking and uh, waiting, getting, waiting for Baggy to come out. Where's Baggy? I want him out Horrible. Here. Horrible. <laughs> That was horrifying. <laughs> I just, and Bear, I don't mean to, I don't mean to bore you guys with this, but this is an important story about that and our relationship. Um, I was in Colorado because uh, I had retired, and I was in Colorado with my kids. So I picked this weekend to come back because he, Craig might get it, and I wouldn't, you know, I, I didn't want to be gone and then not be there. So I flew back from Colorado. And I got there on a Friday and I think Craig needed five hits. I think that's how it went. Five hits to get 3000. And I saw him before the game and he's like, dude, I said, Craig, let me tell you something. I, a couple choice words for him. I said, I am leaving Sunday after the game, no matter what. So you got three days to get five hits. And at that particular time, he was getting about a hit every week. Um, <laughs> and so he goes, Oh my God. He goes, that's a lot of pressure. So I go up in the GM's box. He gets his first hit gets a second hit, gets a third hit, and he gets his fifth hit, and I'm sitting out there, and I said, I have got to go see him. I don't know what it was, but I said, I got to go see him. I'm walking down the stairwell, and I'm freaking crying. And I'm like, you got to be freaking kidding me. I'm crying over Craig. You got to be kidding me. <laughs> and then I get there, and I said, I just got to see him. He's on the field, and I, I walk into the dugout, and here he comes to grab me. And I'm like, wait, wait, what are you doing? He goes, I want you to come out here. I want you to come out here. I'm saying, are you out of your mind? I said, I'm in street clothes. I said, I do not want to be out there. And he's like, you got to come out here. You got to come out here. Um, but I've never, there's two, two times in my life that I've felt that kind of jubilation. The first was Daryl Kyle when he threw his no hitter. And the second one, when Craig got his 3000 hit, I was, I was moved. I really was. Cause I knew how important that was to Craig and it made, uh, it, it moved me. It really did. And I'm just, I'm happy to be a part of it. Baggy. It's interesting. Uh, anyone that's been around you, uh, they, they say the consummate teammate, um, it, it really represents you the type of people, um, that you surrounded yourself with. And you've mentioned a lot of these guys already, but I want to give you enough time to realize this because if any of our listeners, um, have YouTubed your hall of fame speech, it has everything to do with uh, your teammates and what they represent and and what they meant to you. So I'm going to mention some guys that you haven't really mentioned yet, and I'd like to get your take on them. And I'll start with uh, one of the greatest right-handed hitters I've ever been a teammate with, too, uh, Moises Alou. Yeah. Moises Alou is my compadre. It means Moises is the grand – is the uh, god – God him and his wife, Austria, are godparents to my two girls – um, Mo, Mo just, he's just freaking cool. Um, he can hit like no other Christmas morning. He'll wake up and get you two hits. I promise you, um, plays to win. You know, he's another one of those guys would be four for four, 
make an out, a line drive, and then slam his helmet because he made an out. Um, just a great, great person. Um, one of the best people I know. Uh, and I appreciate you bringing him up because he's such an important part of my life. And we, we met as teammates in 98 and still are great friends today. Uh, you mentioned him uh, just in your previous uh, answer as well as no hitter, Daryl Kyle, the late Daryl Kyle, what he meant to you and uh, a lot of people around baseball. Well, um, you know, I knew Daryl, my, uh, my first memory of Daryl, I, I was went to instruction league and I walk into the save in and Daryl sitting on the bed with a game boy playing video games. And I walk in with a pizza and a 12 pack. So that tells you about our relationship. So Daryl's one of my best friends. And, you know, uh, you know, so I, I have his Jersey in my, when you walk up the stairs to my, my weight room, his Jersey's up there. Um, I've never, I'll never get over Daryl Kyle and what happened. Um, I miss him. Uh, there were so many things that we were going to do after we finished playing, go fishing around the world and stuff like that. And, um, he's just, a, you know, he called himself a, you know, skinny fat guy and he was a dork, Yeah, but he was my dork. And, uh, you know, I love him to death and I miss him every day. Yeah. So many of us uh, were stunned uh, when yeah. that happened because of uh, the impact he had, uh, not on the field, but off the field as well. Um, one other guy that was lockstep with you uh, with the Houston Astros, I know he meant a lot to you, is Brad Osmus, the catcher. He doesn't mean nothing to me. Twink, twink. <laughs> um, he, uh, no, Brad and I are best friends too. He, um, he is the most sarcastic, smart, pain in the ass that I know. Um, but hysterical, uh, very smart about the game. Uh, he was, I mean, who, who played, he played more years in the big leagues than me. I mean, you know how sad that is. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you a quick story about Brad. It's funny. So we're in, I forget where we were and I'm sitting on the bench. Brad strikes out again. He comes to the bench. He starts firing shit all over the place. Sits down next to me and he's like pissed off. And I, I looked at, I turn him, I go, why are you mad? He goes, cause I had a butt. I said, dude, you've never been successful. Why would you be mad of a strikeout? That's normal for you. And, you know, but he, we sat, you know, he said we were locker mates and, you know, we'd sit there and critique people, make fun of people all day long. Uh, a tremendous catcher. I like, I judge all catchers by what I saw Brad do. Um, great teammate. <laughs> just, he couldn't hit, but he played more years in the big leagues than I did. And the only guy like Roger Clemens told him, I don't mean to say names, but he said, how does somebody play 17, 18 years hitting eighth? Like generally <laughs> when you get to eighth, you you're out of the game. <laughs> and he, he continued to, to, to do it, but uh great mind and a great person. Interesting that you say that because uh, as a visitor, we come out and you guys would be taking batting practice in Houston and, uh, and, and, and he's always in your group. Uh, Brad Osmus yeah. is there no matter if he's starting or he's not oh, yeah. starting that day. Uh, and you guys would always have like a home run derby contest. Yeah. How'd that go? You'd be shocked. It would be very close every day. He's beat me a few times. We got, we got in an argument in um, I think St. Louis or, or Detroit. Um, like a real argument about baseball. He took it to the room, it room and everything. So I leave, he's pissed at him, me and I'm pissed at him. So we don't talk the entire next day. We go into batting practice. We're not talking. And 
he's so we're hitting, 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 and we're he's put we're kind of playing home run derby, but we're not talking to each other. Brad has like the best day ever. He hit like seven homers in BP, and we weren't talking. So finally, <laughs> after the game, we started talking again. He goes, "Did you see my BP?" I go, "Yeah, I saw." <laughs> That's why I wasn't talking to you. I would have made I would have made up with you before that, but you're killing me. <laughs> but I mean, it's it's a story about me how bad I was in BP that I can't beat Brad Austin's. You know what, Baggy? Uh, I'll finish with this because it was actually in your Hall of Fame speech as well, and I don't think the uh, the listeners understand uh, the impact of this uh, community. I'll, I'll call it uh, clubhouse guys. You mentioned Dennis Laborio, and, and I think that's important. Uh, in your your career, but uh, I think the awareness of what clubhouse guys are for individual players and collectively is really important. I when I heard your speech, uh, I absolutely loved it because those really were best friends of mine, uh, and I'd go to seven different teams. You stayed in the same boat, but they were important to you, and, and you put it in your speech. Tell us why. Well. I think that's a lost something lost in the game today, Swain. I think that, you know, in the process of getting rid of all the older players in the game, um, they have forgot about the important things. Our clubhouse guys are with us when we get there. And after we leave, they're still there. Um, there are guys that do a lot for us uh, and they're human beings and they have, you know, they have stuff going on in their lives and to be a part of the team part and a part of their lives. I mean, they mean a ton to us. And I think, to forget them would be, would be not right on our part. Um, I have tremendous relationships with our clubhouse guy. And I'll tell you what, you agree with me on this. You want to find out about a guy on another team, Mm -hmm. ask a clubhouse guy, No, don't ask another player because everybody can be nice to me, but how are you to other people? Those are the people that I want to know that come play for us. What kind of people they are, because you know, th- these guys, they're normal people that do a ton of work for us and they deserve all the credit that they should get. You know, Jeff, when you guys make a run as a team to the postseason, I-, I think I enjoy hearing those stories about the clubhouse guys almost as much as I like hearing about the players, because it means so much to you guys as players to give that uh, to the entire organization, including all the clubhouse guys and, and the fans as well. In 97, you make the playoffs for the first time, what would be six trips and in one World Series in your final year in 2005. I would imagine from a fan's perspective, watching you in that span of time, it was emotional. But take us inside your mind and heart, not only to make it in 97 after being so close, but then to finally get to the World Series, even though you're all banged up knowing you've got a bunch of clubhouse guys rooting you on and teammates as well. What was it like for you? Well, I mean, I'll start with losing 97 games in 1991. And as I said earlier, I really didn't know we lost. I mean, I knew we lost 97 games, but I was just playing baseball, having a blast. Then you go into 93, 92, we were getting a little bit better. 93, we were getting a little bit better. 94, we were getting better. 95, we came in second. 96 I think we came in second again and then finally to win in in 97 and get to the playoffs it was kind of like this big gorilla was off our back um and the guys that were there we've been through all of this together uh it was a, a great time and then we go to more playoffs I think in 298 we had the best team that the San Diego Padres beat us um I'll take that matchup any day of the year we just happened to run into Kevin Brown which didn't help but and then we finally get to the World Series, 
and I truly was happy for Craig, the city, um, the clubhouse guys, our manager, uh, just to get there. Uh, and for me, it was bittersweet because I was hurt and I couldn't be the person that I, in my mind, I could be because I was physically not able to do those things. I, you know, I DH two games and then pinch it two. And so I really didn't get into the whole World Series atmosphere because playing defense for me is a very important thing for me. Uh, I love to play defense. I don't like DH and, um, but I was ecstatic for everybody else. And, you know, it's the same way now. And you talked about clubhouse guys again, you know, I want our guys to win more for our clubhouse guys than I do for our players at this particular point, because they get playoff shares. Um, and that, that's, that means a lot to them and their families. So, you know, it's, it's an evolution of a player where you go from making the big leagues. Then you start talking about, can I stay in the big leagues? How much money can I make? And then you worry about winning baseball games. Luckily for the Astros and the kids that we have now, they've done all of that very young in the earlier part of their career. Well, when you think about it, Baggy, um, a couple instances, and 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 I'll say this: uh, the 1998, and you mentioned it, the Houston Astros versus uh, my San Diego Padres. Um, Kevin Brown against Randy Johnson, yeah. to me, was the best baseball game and the best pitched baseball game that I've ever been a part of. Um, I know you were a huge part of that. Um, to me, the Houston Astros and and the San Diego Padres was probably the identity. That was probably the best matchup in all of the playoffs that particular year. Um, I, I was fascinated by that pitching matchup, though. Yeah, it was amazing. And you say, yeah, I was a part of it. I was, when you talk about Kevin Brown, I was 0 for 8 part of it. <laughs> <laughs> And people ask me all the time, who's the, you know, the best pitcher you ever faced. I said, I tell people the best pitcher I ever faced was Greg Maddox because every at bat was different, but Kevin Brown in 98, um, he was the most dominating thing to me. Um, because even when I got ahead in the count, he, th he would throw me a 94 mile an hour sinker that I could only follow off my shin. And next thing you know, it was two, two again. And I had split and slaughter to worry about, but you know, those two guys at that particular time in their careers, that's, I, and Randy said, that's the best he's ever pitched is with us in, um, in 98. I, I find that hard to believe since he's got four Cy Youngs, but that was dominating stuff on both, on both sides. Uh, I just, I just look at, at that team that we had as a missed opportunity. I look at the challenge too of the Houston Astros and you, and you look up a little bit North and you see the St. Louis Cardinals and Tony LaRusso's club. Uh, you guys had to battle that. That's the Albert Pujols years. Yeah. Um, th that was a huge challenge for you guys. Can you put in perspective, because uh, as a visitor, going against Tony LaRusso's clubs, you knew they were going to be prepared, but there was a frustration part of it too, because he tried to gain that edge. Um, do you agree with that, or, or how did you guys handle that? Because to me, it was frustrating. This is a Hall of Fame manager but he wanted to be a part of that. And it was pretty interesting. Uh, your perspective on that. I think with us that we were so familiar with, with the Cardinals, uh, I think there was respect on both sides. Um, you know, that you were just playing the Cardinals and Tony LaRusso had to be there. And when we walked on the field, we were felt like we were better than them and they felt that they were better than us. You know, we had great games, a lot of rivalry with that team, um, more than the Cubs because the Cubs weren't any good at that time. Um, but a ton of respect. They had guys that played the game the right way. You know, when you, when you roll out Renneria and you roll out 
Matheny and, you know, the list goes on and on. And that guy Pujols, who was the best right-handed hitter at the time that the game has ever seen. Um, you know, that, that guy, I mean, forget about that stuff. He, I mean, he was great. Uh, that's why I hate seeing him now because my mem- my memory of him is how great he was. He just can't run right now, but anyway, that's another story. But, you know, the Cardinals, their Cardinals organization is a big deal. I mean, they've been around a long time and they do it the right way. And Tony, you know, Tony, you know, he, he stood on the front step of that thing and he, he believed that he was smarter than everybody else. And they pretty good, did a good job with that. You just mentioned a couple of guys there who are uh, not only in the hall of fame, but in Pujols who jumps to mind right away, probably a first ballot hall of fame guy. Uh, you were always known as a team first player. So I'll let listeners know just how good Jeff Bagwell was 15 year career in Houston hit over 306 times. More than 30 home runs, nine times. More than 100 RBIs, eight times. And OPS, if you're one of the stat heads out there, OPS over 1,000, five times. And maybe the greatest testament to what you're able to do on the field is to be on the field. You played at least 156 games in 10 of your 15 seasons. By the way, a full season in 94, just the same at 110 games. An incredible resume when it was all said and done, Jeff. And... You retire after the 05 season, then you're eligible for the Hall of Fame, probably the ultimate recognition for any player in any sport, for my argument. You get in in 2017, your seventh year on the ballot, but I think the stories leading up to that, the anticipation, seeing your good buddy, Craig Biggio, get in uh, a couple of years prior. Walk us through, you and Barry together, since you were lockstep in this, Jeff, start walking us through your heart and mind from the moment you were first on the ballot, all the lead up before you finally got in. Well, there's a long story on that one, but, um, you know, I, all the stuff about steroids and the era and um, about me and what my body looked like, um, which is interesting to me. I, I, I look at guys nowadays and they're on freaking – ESPN and MLB working out and all that. And I was doing that back in before I even got to the big leagues. And so I was thrown into that mix. Um, and you know what, man, whatever. I mean, I'm not going to change people's mind by what I said. I mean, I can only say I didn't do it so many times. Nobody ever came out and said, Oh, I saw him do it or I gave it to him or whatever the crap is. So I knew that going in. Um, and so I, after that, man, I just, I, I can't do anything except what my stats are. Um, and so for me, it was okay. I didn't, you know, I didn't go home and, you know, be mad or anything like that. I just went about my business because, you know, for me, my life after baseball is very important to me and, and what I have going on in my life um, that takes precedence over worrying, worrying about what a bunch of sports writers want to think about me. You know, I, I have a perspective on this having been through it with Jeff. Um, he used to say that he didn't really care if he made the Hall of Fame or not. I wouldn't believe that from anyone except Jeff Bagwell. Mm-hmm. And I thought he was sincere when he said that. But in the run-up, once you're eligible, needless to say, you become interested in how the voting is going. And there's uh, there's an aspect to that that I had gone through it with Craig Biggio, who was eligible. He made it in his third year of eligibility. But in each of those first three years, I mean, this is a guy with – 3,000 hits and 1,000 extra base hits and all of his accolades. 
who we thought first year, I thought he had a good chance. Second year, I thought he had a good chance. And what I would do is go down to Houston and be with them the night before and then the morning of when you were hoping to get that call. Well, Craig finally got it in his third year. Uh, Jeff was in his fifth or sixth year of eligibility. And we knew there's a website that exists that's pretty accurate and talks about, shows you the, it tracks the voting as you lead up to the Hall of Fame, the announcement who's been elected. And we would watch that. And so year after year, Jeff was getting closer. And uh, so I went and, and I thought, okay, the, you know, he's going to make it in his fifth year, sixth year. Sixth year. And, uh, sixth year. And so we went down and I, I believe that year it was just Jeff and his wife and I, and we're down in this little pub room he had and you're pacing around and they tell you uh, at X, um, at nine o'clock in the morning or whenever, if you are going to get the call, it's going to between, be between nine and nine o five and nine thirty or whatever it is. So you're kind of on pins and needles, the phone's sitting there on the counter and you're staring at it. So the, the first year I was there, Jeff, you get a call. So uh, talk about that one and what happened on that call. Okay. Well, so Barry tells me, Hey, this thing is trending. So you, you actually might have a shot to get in. This is the, I said, no, man, everybody's talking about the next year and all that. He goes, no, it's really trending. So Barry came in. I think we went and had sushi or something like that. And I'm kind of like, there's no way. And then I'm like, this is ridiculous. We're looking at this tracker. It's only 50%, blah, blah, blah. And Barry's like, no, you got a chance and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, holy cow. I said, okay. So we go downstairs and I got my phone out and the slot say it was from four to five. So at like 4.20, my phone rings. Everybody kind of stands up, Rachel and I and Barry, like, oh, I look down and it says, Pete's find meat. It's my meat guy calling me <laughs> between four and five. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> you want a dose of reality? There you go, buddy. <laughs> when you oh, look at it, it say, I didn't get in. Yeah, but you finally get that call, and Jack O'Connell uh, calls you and gives you the great news. Take us through that, Baggy, and who's in the room, and your reaction when you got that call. Well, yeah, that was another big day because they expected me to get in, and um, I had a, my whole family there, um, Barry, uh, my best friend, Doc, um, and Rachel and I were just kind of waiting around and somewhere around the same time, we get a phone call and, you know, it says the two one two number, which is New York. Um, and then for Jack to tell me that, um, you know, it, it's, it was a relief. I think my family was very, very excited about it. I was too. It's kind of a weird feeling. Um, you know, especially, I mean, I, I'm not, I, I don't really love all the attention and all that, but when you talk about the hall of fame, it's kind of a big deal. So, I mean, it, it was very cool, and I was just excited to be able to share that with my family. Barry, what was your feeling? You were in the room again, um, and everyone that's played against you, Baggy, knows that you were a Hall of Famer, but the realization of it, when's it going to happen? Barry, you were there. What, what was it like for you? Well, that, that second year that I was there, I had talked to enough writers, and this tracker was uh, the website looked like it was a nothing's a sure thing, but it looked very likely. But still, as Jeff said, it's almost uh, a relief when that call came. It was, ah, okay, finally, you know, it's, it's, it's happened because there's a great deal of tension. I, I remember that year, the night before, um, 
I had gotten there and we were going to have dinner at Jeff's house and Craig Biggio comes over. And this is another sign of how close these were. Craig was so excited about the prospect that Jeff was going to join him as a Hall of Famer. And I remember the three of us sitting around and, and uh, after dinner and talking. And one of the things Craig said was, uh, hey, do you, do you think there's ever been two Hall of Famers that have played as many games together as we did? So, of course, we Google it and we determined that no two major leaguers had ever played as many games together as the two of them. And they were both, I remember the reaction of both of them when they looked and went, wow, you know, we really yeah. did that. It was, uh, and that that goes back to the relationship between the, the two of them. Yeah, you think about it, Baggy, uh, you know, all of those games you guys played against, that you think of the uh, Lou Whitaker and Alan Trammell yeah. uh, and and you guys uh, take over that. It's the, the work ethic and, and the want to play every single day. Uh, as we look at your stats and realize, man, uh, you showed up. You played every time. I want to take you into that Hall of Fame, too. I'm not going to go through the speech because I know that's a daunting task for a guy that just wants to to put a a bat in his hands. We've heard of how many people you want to thank and all that stuff. But I do want to get your perspective on being around all of those Hall of Famers. When you're doing the speech, they're right behind you. Um, they're at the hotel what was that like for you? Um, and did you feel at home at any moment during that weekend? Absolutely not. Um, <laughs> I've, you know, the biggest thing is when you go and you get inducted is thank God for my wife. Um, <laughs> you know, you got to deal with your family. You can give them an itinerary, but that means nothing. Um, cause they don't still don't know where they're going. So that was trying to get all that together about my family and stuff. And then, you know, you're around these guys and you're like, you're still questioning whether you deserve to be be there. You know, I, I think only recently as I've had time that, you know, I can Google some of the guys that are in there and go, oh, yeah, I, I'm, I should have been in there. That's OK. But at the time you don't, you know, you got Sandy Koufax, and Joe Morgan, and Johnny Bench and all. And but they couldn't have been any better. You know, everybody gives you they jab on you about your speech and all that. Make it quick, all that kind of stuff. Um but it's 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 kind of overwhelming, but it kind of, you know, as they all say, the first, the year that you get in is a terrible one after you, when you come back, it's better. And they were they were all right about that. But I'll tell you what <clears throat> craziest thing is, you know, the speech thing. Everybody's talking about my speech, speech, speech. I'm like, yeah, I got it, I got it, I got it. So I literally I I got nothing. And I go there <laughs> and I'm looking at Claire Smith, who got in, who I know from Connecticut, she's a sports writer, and I saw her 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 binder and she had words from the top to the bottom of the binder. So probably like 15 pages. So that happened on Saturday and I'm like, okay, so Idelson and John are, are getting mad. We need to see your speech. Need to see your speech. I'm like, I right, come downstairs. I show it to them. They're like, well, this is it. I said, yeah, that's all I got. So I put it in big fonts cause I can't see anymore. And then I wake up on Sunday morning at nine o'clock and I had a panic attack. I'm like, I got nothing. <laughs> I, said, oh, <laughs> I really don't. So to be honest with you, I basically went up there with nothing and I probably had eight lines as far as just to try and keep me on track. Other than that, I just did it by, you know, whatever was in my head at the time. Well, it, it worked out great. You did an amazing job. Uh, I, I was thrilled. I was sitting in a row right behind your dad 
Yeah. To, uh, you know, uh, it, it was one of the biggest days of his life, I know. For sure. Uh, but then, okay, the speech is over, you're relieved, you go back, uh, you take your pictures at the hotel, and then you, we've heard about this, where uh, the Hall of Famers go to a dinner just with Hall of Famers, no wives, no friends, no one else. Uh, and walking into that room, you have to figure out who to sit with and where to go. So how was that for you? What was that like? Absolutely uncomfortable. Um, cause you don't know. And so they have this thing where they'll have, they'll have 3000 hit table. They'll have a, uh, 1500 RBIs and more table, um, blah, blah, blah. And like, I'm like a tweener in all these things. And I'm like, I, so I just sat with, I sat with, with Pudge and, and Tim Raines and whoever else filled in around us. So I still even going back, I don't even know where I'm supposed to sit because they'll tell you to get the heck out of the way. Like, you can't sit here, man. You didn't do this or you did that. You need to be on that table. So uh, I remember coming downstairs after that and somebody asked, one of my family members asked me, goes, well, who did, who did you sit with? And <laughs> I think it was my dad or somebody said, or maybe you did, Barry. I don't know. It said, it really doesn't matter who you sit with. You got a pretty good seat no matter where you are. Uh, <laughs> and that's the truth. Uh, it's a, it's intimidating. It really is um, just to see different personalities and all that, but it's all good. Yeah. Pretty incredible moment, Baggy. Uh, I'll put you in, in this light too. Uh, the following year, Trevor Hoffman, uh, one of your yeah. good friends, um, unbelievable closer gets in and he just barely gets in as well. But uh, I, I want to get your take on this too. Um, you're already in, you've already done the speech and here comes the next class, and you get to sit behind them. What do those guys do? Uh, what, do what do you do, and how did you handle that, um, being your, your the next year and hearing Trevor Hoffman and the others uh, get into the next class? Well, to be honest with you, the only reason, to be honest, I mean, the truth is, the only reason I come back is for the guys, the next guys to get in. Uh, I was excited for Trevor um, because I know Trevor. You know, I don't, I don't know all these other guys as well as I know Trevor. I played against Trevor his whole career. Um, and the funny part about Trevor is Trevor got out of his car to get into the Otisaga and he had flip-flops on and <laughs> jeans. And I said, you don't got a hair on your butt if you don't freaking wear flip-flops onto that freaking stage. on Because <laughs> that's who you are, man. Um, you know, I, I go back for those guys because I enjoy listening to him. And the, the, like when Rock and, and Pudge talk, I'm still in the midst of what the heck did I just say? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But when the, the next group comes in, there's so much clarity of listening to their speeches and their stories and all that kind of stuff that's what makes it fun for me is is to is to see listen to the other guys talk and have clarity of of what they're trying to say and how much that means to them when you put together a a career the way you had it and then it's capped uh with a hall of fame induction i, I would imagine it's just the same to ride out into the sunset golf be a rancher whatever it is jeff bagwell enjoys doing but I'm always also fascinated as to how a player, especially one of your caliber, fills the void uh, in a terms of what's next. What is next for Jeff Bagwell, and what would you like to do? Well, to be honest with you, what's next is my legacy. My legacy is not playing baseball. Um, it's what I did for a living. And I did, I did some good things. I made some people in Houston happy, um, something to talk about, which was a big, you know, I talked about it in my hall of fame speech. If I, if you can sit around with your family and say how either bad or good Jeff Bagwell was, then I did something to put a family together. And for now, I mean, that's what I do now. I, I you know, I got five kids. I'm trying to get them all somewhat sane in, in a crazy world. Um, 
and trying to, you know, just make everybody's life better here in some way or, or, or shape or form. I still are involved with the Astros. Um, hopefully a little bit more this year coming up too, because we got a lot of things to do, uh, which keeps the void, but it's a difficult transformation when in 2006 at two 30 in the afternoon, I'm sitting in my living room going, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. Like you have no purpose. It's a, it's a, it's a reality that is tough at times because you're supposed to be at the ballpark uh, and you're not. And so it's a tough transition. Um, and the good news is I have a ton of family and friends that love me as I love them back. And, you know, my life's um, all good already. Baggy, I'll tell you this uh, from a former teammate, uh, even though it was in Chatham, Massachusetts in the Cape Cod league, um, watching you perform and watching you do it your way. Uh, I, I tip a cap to you, man, because uh, not only did I respect the way you were at, on the field, I, I loved the way you were off the field, the way uh, other teammates would would talk about you. Um, that makes you a Hall of Famer in everyone's boat that's been around you. So I thank you for what you did. I thank you for the way you represented yourself and the way you played the game. Um, I just absolutely loved watching your career. I'll tell you this, too. Um, at the end of my career, I wanted guys that I respected signed jerseys. And uh, I asked you, and I send the jersey over, and it was like a, a book on, on your number, uh, number five, which I, I was enamored by getting that because it's special because of the way I respected you. But uh, I'll always remember this, too, you, and, and you, you started with this. You said, listen, I, I always know that I'll have more hair on my face than you'll ever have on your head. And I thank you for that, man, because that's what's special about this game of baseball. We all know it. Um, uh, you're a great representative of the game in Major League Baseball, and I, I tip my cap to your career, buddy. I, I appreciate it, Swain, and you're a great friend. And when I saw you at Trevor's Deal, I had a big smile, and you had a big smile on our face. And and you know, Swain, this game, the game, people say, oh, you have fun. But I said, man, I grinded when I played. But the relationships that I've made in the game, for people like Moises Alou, who, how am I going to have godparents from Killingworth, Connecticut, two godparents mm-hmm. that are Dominican? Yep. Our relationship that started back in when we were in college, me playing against you in University of Maine, and we're still great friends. The relationships mm-hmm. that we have in this game with Barry, other guys, and it, it is so special and it, it's so much of a value in my life. And I know in yours, because I know your personality and I know your mother and father, I know every, mm-hmm. it's just something that you can't, it's hard to explain to people. And when people say, do you miss the game? Yeah, I miss the game, but I miss the relationships on the everyday basis. You know, if, if I can just add something to the what next question about Jeff, um, I have heard it from way too many people. Uh, whether it be Moises, whether it be Brad Osmus, whether it be Craig, people who know the game, say Baggy's got to be involved. He's, he's too good for the game. He has too much knowledge about the game, and not only knowledge of the game, but knowledge about of how to go about it. Uh, and hopefully there's going to be a place. There is right now with the Astros. He's a, a voice that is heard there. And uh, uh, along with that, you know, people grow into things. And I can just say, watching... Jeff grow into the the father and husband he is in a, a a blended family and become a dad to his stepchildren and a dad to his own children and and be the friend that he's been uh, to so many people including me 
uh, it's just uh, something I treasure in my life and I'm thankful for, for it and thankful for you, Jeff. And I'm thankful that we, we got you on here that I could twist your arm a little bit and get you to talk. Uh, you ain't got to twist my arm. You know that. I appreciate that, brother. Thank you. I love you guys. I do. Uh, Jeff, thank, thank, thank you so much for spending the time with us. And uh, it's always a treat to have a Hall of Fame player on the podcast. But more than that, for all of us, it's twice as wonderful when that person is a Hall of Fame human being. And we appreciate what you brought to the game. We appreciate what you bring to the fans and your family. And we appreciate your time, Jeff. Thanks, Mike. You had a good year this year, too. Mike. Oh, it's not you, Pomerantz? <laughs> yeah. He's a left-hander, but he's yeah, not that left-hander. I thought it was him. I thought it was him. He's got, fastball's gotten better. That's it. I finally picked it up a notch. <laughs> Thanks up. for having me, guys. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for checking out Major League Beginnings. If you had as much fun as we did, we hope you'll go ahead and hit the subscribe button where you usually download your podcast from. It could be Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you like. We're just glad to have you aboard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.